Well, thank you for the opportunity to come back for a little bit of a reprise uh, a year later and be here at the Second Baptist Church. Uh, greetings to you all. Uh, so grateful for the opportunity to share with you from the Word uh, today. And uh, we've had a wonderful week down on the Cape with my good buddy, uh, Tom Holozowski and his wife, Gretchen. Uh, he's, he's the only person, aside from my two siblings, who's known me for 60 years. <laughs> and we're still friends. And it's kind of amazing, kind of ironic, because if you'd known us as teenagers, uh, this would have been the most unlikely place for us to ever enter into. Uh, both atheists, both into drugs, both having lots and lots of problems. And then the Lord redeemed us, uh, caught us up, brought us through to Jesus. And uh, I was excited to hear uh, Tom was just sharing about the kind of emphasis that you wanted to have this year uh, in your church in outreach and reaching out to the lost. So I was thinking about a passage, what would be a really good passage where Jesus illustrates for us the principles of evangelism? What does it take to break into the life of a person, and in this case, a person who's quite resistant to the gospel? So uh, John 4, 1 to 41, uh, I like to call the approach of Jesus to resistant people. Uh, Jesus gets around barriers. As we walk through this passage, we're just going to take snippets of the passage and talk about them. You will notice how Jesus is confronted with barriers one after another, and he figures out a way to get around those barriers and to get to the heart of this woman where she opens up and is prepared to receive the message that Jesus brings. And I think as Jesus does that, he gives us an example, not of a particular method, so to speak. Most of us have learned methods of evangelism, but what we need to do is learn how to love people. Right? That, that's, it's easy to learn a method. And if you'll notice, Jesus never uses the same method twice. Uh, and what's really amazing about this particular passage is that it's the longest conversation of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Now, this is really amazing when you think about it because, number one, he's talking to a woman. And that's not normal in this culture. And in fact, the passage says how the disciples are kind of amazed. You're, you're sitting here at the well and you're talking with a woman, okay? And it's not just that it's a woman, but it's a Samaritan woman. Jesus having a conversation with that group of people who were probably the most negatively inclined towards the Jews. And in fact, she actually uses, I'm not exactly sure how this should be said, but she actually uses what amounts to a racial slur when she first talks with Jesus. Uh, it's kind of like, what are you, a Jew? Okay, and I don't think the word Jew was being used in a positive sense there. Uh, how is it that you, a Jew, are talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Well, it really is kind of remarkable, isn't it? Well, let's dive into this passage and have a look at Jesus' approach and the way that Jesus loves people. Because before I teach you anything about evangelism, the most important thing we need is a love for people. And that's what we see Jesus illustrating in this passage. So let's begin uh, with our first section from uh, John chapter 4. And we're going to look at starting, I think, about verse 7. And one of the things I love about Jesus is he is a guy who asks questions. And here we'll see the first one. 
Uh, this lady comes to him, he's sitting by the well, and he says, will you give me a drink? Now, that's a pretty remarkable thing to do. Now, I, I think there was a fellow who did a study on the questions of Jesus. Uh, in his study, I think he said there were 303 times that Jesus asked people questions. Uh, some people would add more to that anytime it was a rhetorical question. That's also kind of a question. Jesus was a question asker. We think of him as a preacher, but what's amazing about him is how much time he spent drawing people out. Now, we know that Jesus, as God in the flesh, knew everything about all people, right? He knew the heart of man, the scripture says. Nevertheless, he asked questions, which is remarkable because you can know a lot about a person without really deeply touching or understanding them. And Jesus' concern is not merely to know about the person, but to come into relationship with them. And to ask questions where he comes to truly, fully understand the heart of this person. So he begins humbly. That's the amazing thing. He is humble and he expresses a need. Uh, he comes to her not as someone coming from above her, which he had every right to do. This is God in the flesh. But instead he comes almost as someone beneath her and says, hey, would you give me a drink of water? And Jesus does not need to have a fixed pattern of approach because in his love for people, he wants to understand them first. So you'll never see Jesus repeat this exact pattern again anywhere in, in the New Testament. He uses it once with this person. And then with somebody else like Nicodemus, he has a very different approach. There's a lesson there. And that's something I hope we get into deeply, not only today uh, in, our, in our sermon, but also in our seminar that we'll be having afterwards. All right, let's move on to the next passage. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Different uh, translations put this slightly differently. Uh, but you can sense in this translation that it's kind of a rebuff, okay? <laughs> Who are you, a Jew, talking to me as a Samaritan, okay? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, and I guess you can see from the illustration here that Samaritans respond in kind. We don't talk to Jews. We don't have anything to do with Jews. What are you talking to me for? In other words, uh, well, let me ask you a question. Have anybody here ever been rebuffed? Ever had somebody sort of smack you? It's like, you know, uh, just a quick example. Uh, I was in Sweden uh, in a, uh, a mall, and I had a big cart that I used to trundle down into the mall, got permission to do this, and I had Bibles in different languages, uh, 53 different languages, I think, I had, because it was a big immigrant area as well. And I can remember one time, this one guy walks up, and he's kind of browsing, looking at the books, and I just said to him, hi, how are you? He looks at me, and he says, do I know you? <laughs> well, no, we just met. Well, let's keep it that way, he says. Have you ever been, you know, slapped like that? It's like, okay, now, I'm not Jesus. So at the time, I didn't have a comeback. Uh, you know, what's the normal response for most of us? This would be where the conversation would end, right? It's like, okay, no more conversation with you. You know, you do your thing, I'll do mine, and Mary the twain shall meet. But that's not Jesus' way. Imagine, he, she uses a slur, she rebuffs him completely when he's humbled himself. Isn't that a good excuse to just walk away? But Jesus is love. 
and he's not going to be rebuffed. I wish I had had a great comeback like Jesus did with that guy. And I've been, as I've been thinking about today, preparing and doing a little bit of, of preparations for the, for the sermon, I thought to myself, thinking back on that guy in Gothenburg, if I could do that over, what would have been, what would have been the right thing to say next? Anyway, well, I'm not Jesus, but Jesus was able to do that. Uh, and I guess my question would be to you, how would you respond if you received either a racial slur or some other kind of a insult from somebody? And if you think about it, how you respond to that is a measure of your love. Jesus is love. God is love, the scriptures tell us. And for that reason, He's prepared to get through even a slur like this to find out how can I really understand this person and more importantly, help her to understand the love of God and the purpose that God has for her. So Jesus loves people who hate him. And we, we, we know that. But he also sets a paradigm for us, doesn't he? If Jesus loves people who hate him, we as Christians need to love people. Even, most people don't, but even if a person hates us, we are still called to love and to show concern. So, let's go on to the next passage. And uh, here we get Jesus' response, which is so classic, so beautiful. He takes an insult and he flips it around and makes it a teaser to, to pull her in. And he asks her second question. And by the way, it's a rhetorical question. Uh, it doesn't really ask for an answer, but it is intended to make the person think, right? To make the person think. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that, is, uh, that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this is very confusing, and we, we're going to see in the next passage that the woman doesn't understand what he's talking about at all, but it's curious. It's, it's interesting. Uh, would you be interested in some water that really satisfied you, is what he's actually saying. Ignore the insult and add a thought. Get the person to think. Uh, he invites her, in essence, to engage in further conversation the very opposite of what the insult was intended to do, gets you to shut up. By the way, Christians, what's our biggest problem today? What is the world saying to you, especially here in New England? Shut up, right? Now, I'm not saying obnoxiously continue to preach the gospel when the person has told you to shut up because they're not interested at that point. But the whole idea of let's see if we can go on with this conversation and there might be something meaningful here, not just for me, but for you. And so Jesus does that. Uh, he refuses to take offense. He loves people and he wants to get through to this woman. He doesn't preach at her. If you notice in the early part of the passage, it's all her doing the talking. And Jesus is throwing these interjections. Later, he'll begin to talk more. But here, basically, He's asking good questions and getting her to open up, trying to get beyond the facade, beyond the barriers, beyond the walls to her heart. What is in her heart? Where is she at? 
He learned how to ask good questions. Now, um, this past uh, week, we had Gretchen and Tom, but we also had my best buddy from college, uh, Bruce Dreisbach. And here's how you're going to learn uh, just what God has been doing in this guy, David Cashin, to get him to the place where he can preach in a church. Well, let me put it this way. Drug addict, kid who started on drugs really early, 13 years of age, messed up in every imaginable way, social misfit, you know, flunked all of his courses in high school. How he ever even got to college, I don't know. It was just, you know, a miracle of God. But uh, towards the end of my high school career, I met Jesus. Now, Jesus will take you as you are. You know, uh, you, don't, you can't fix yourself up. You can't make yourself good enough for God. You can't earn salvation by your good works. You desperately need to be able to come to Jesus as you are. And I did. Now, the wonderful thing is that Jesus won't leave you where you are. <clears throat> he'll begin to work with you. And uh, sometimes he'll use people, what we would call a discipler, <clears throat> who will disciple you and help you to understand what does it mean to really walk with Jesus. And most importantly, what does it mean to be like Jesus in his love for other people? Okay, I get to Gordon College. And uh, I'm on uh, the third floor of Wood Hall, and Bruce Dreisbach is my RA, okay? And uh, I, you know, I'd see Bruce, and we got to be friends a little bit, and I'd chit-chat about some things. But there was one big complaint I had in life. And I said, Bruce, I've never had a girlfriend. <laughs> I really want to have a girlfriend. And uh, I don't know what uh, advice Bruce gave me at that point, but <clears throat> I'll never forget the first weekend when we had open dorm. You know what open dorm is, right? The girls get to come over to the boys, you know, dormitory, under supervision, of course, Christian college. But, you know, they're coming over, and I'm thinking, what can I do to impress the girls? <sighs> and I had a great idea. The idea was <clears throat> put the two feet on the, the, this wall and the two hands on the other wall and walk up the wall, okay? And, and when you get up to about the ceiling, you watch for the girls coming through the door, and as they come through the door, you wave, hi, here I am. You're not impressed? <laughs> well, the girls weren't either. But Bruce walked under me, <clears throat> looked up and said, Cashin, come down, we need to have a little talk. So he sat me down and he said, uh, Dave, you really need to learn how to care for people. And I've got a little assignment for you. <clears throat> Every Sunday at church, I want you to meet two new people that you've never met before. And he gave me a list of 10 questions. And he said, now, I don't want you to use the paper. You've got to memorize the questions. <clears throat> You're going to talk to two people every Sunday that you don't know. And then Sunday night, we'll come back together, and you share with me what you learned about those two people. You can imagine what the, the first month or two of doing this, awkward doesn't even begin to describe the experience. But after a while, I began to enjoy it getting to know people. I'm getting to learn what it means to love people, to listen to them, to ask good questions, to figure out where they're at. And I like to say two things about Bruce Dreisbach. He gave me my career because my career has been as a cultural anthropologist, which is all about asking questions. And he gave me my wife, Margareta here. Um, 
I, I like to say that if she had ever met me when I was in high school, there was not a snowball's chance in hell that she would have married me. But Bruce Dreisbach taught me what it means to go out and meet people and be concerned and learn what it means. Because Dave Cashin lived in his own little world. Jesus is illustrating this as well for us. The barriers that he goes through, the insults that he puts up with, the suffering ultimately that he goes through to redeem us. And he continues to love, continues to reach out, continues to, to touch our hearts. So, uh, let's take a look at the next uh, part of the passage. Now, for the first time, the lady addresses him as sir. Uh, there's been a change of attitude. Uh, she's beginning to realize, hmm, there's, there's something interesting going on. So, she said, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw, draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Um, what you might call is Jesus has broken through the first barrier and now he's getting the other person to open up even if they misunderstand what's being asked. The lady misunderstands completely, but her heart has opened up. Now, this is an event which is described in a book. Uh, how many of you know Oz Guinness, the author? had a great book that came out in the 80s called The Dust of Death. Well, this is his latest book uh, that's come out. It's called Signals of Transcendence by Oz Guinness. And in this book, uh, Guinness says that every human being at some point in their life has an experience of transcendence that raises questions in their minds about why am I here? What am I doing on this planet? What's my purpose? What happens to me when I, I die? What's the nature of the world's problem? Is there a solution to that problem? Now, the interesting thing about these signs of signals of transcendence is that they are different for every person. It's never the same for anybody. So one of the reasons why when someone is getting a signal of transcendence and they're getting ready to start searching, you need to be able to see a different pattern maybe than the one that you had. Now, uh, what he does in the book is he walks you through the lives in very short, very interesting little chapters of numerous well-known atheists who have become Christians. And in every case, he identifies a transcendental moment, a signal that these people got that opened their hearts to something else going on in, in reality. Uh, I'm not going to share the one that I have written here about G.K. Chesterton. He's in here. C.S. Lewis is in here, a bunch of others. But uh, the story of Malcolm Muggeridge. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge was an atheist and a satirist who was the editor for 30 years of Punch magazine in, in England. How did Malcolm Muggeridge begin his pathway to Christ? Well, it happened on a beach in Mozambique. Uh, he had been commissioned by the uh, intelligence services of England during World War II to be stationed in Mozambique and to monitor German shipping. During his time there, uh, he had come to such a place of despair over life. He was an atheist. He was a pretty nasty guy. And he just came to the place of saying, I don't want to live anymore. So he decided he was going to commit suicide. By the way, I'm sure none of you have heard this story because I've never seen this before. Uh, the stories in the book are very, this is the kind of stuff we kind of ignore. We don't notice it. 
But this initial, because Muggeridge didn't come to faith immediately, but he decided to commit suicide and he decided to swim out from the beach in Mozambique and, and drown himself. So he swims out about 200 yards from the beach and all of a sudden he turns around, he's treading water and he looks back at the beach. And there's a little cafe up on a hillside with its lights on. And he looks at the lights and suddenly this word comes into his head, home. H-O-M-E, home. And suddenly he realizes a couple of things. First of all, I'm going to devastate my wife when I do this. I'm going to wreck her life. I'm going to wreck that home. But then there was something transcendental, something beyond just a place. Home is heavenly. It's something more than just this world. He had this sense that there's more to life than me just ending my life at this point. And he swam back to shore. Didn't become a Christian at that point. It wasn't until probably a decade later that he came to faith. But at this point, he began his search. And I believe that every human being gets that transcendental signal at some point. Now, most of us never pay attention because of what the book also refers to as weapons of mass distraction, <laughs> right? We all are utterly, fantastically distracted. Our culture has become superbly adept at distracting us. We don't have time to think. We don't have time to sit down. We don't have time to muse. We're freaked out busy. And that's what Satan wants. Don't take a retreat for a weekend by yourself alone to seek the Lord. Just be producing, doing, 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 never being, never listening, never seeking. So what does Jesus do? This is the lady's transcendental moment, isn't it? He's asking her a question. He's getting her to think, and she begins to open up. Now, I realize uh, we need to finish by about, what, 11? <laughs> Which means I'm not even halfway through. Anyway, that's okay. We've got a seminar afterwards, so we can finish that. Well, let's run on through here real quickly. Uh, John 4, 13, actually through uh, 15. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, also, uh, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She doesn't get it, does she? He's completely out of touch with what Jesus is talking about. That's okay. That's okay. He's getting into her, uh, what, what's the word? He's getting under her skin. Uh, he's getting her to open up and think. And even though her thinking at this point is quite inaccurate, she is thinking. And she is looking. Uh, Jesus leads her to a higher plane. 
This is a wonderful example of seasoning your speech with salt. And I'm going to end on this slide because uh, we can actually finish the other slides in the other presentation or, or do some other stuff with that. Um, how well do you know your people? How well do you know your people? When you think about outreach, whether you're going to work with Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or good old-fashioned, atheistic, secularized New Englanders, how well do you know your people? Jesus knows his people, and he knows how to lead her to a higher level. Let me just conclude with this one illustration. Uh, we got a lot of Buddhists around. Have you noticed that? Buddhism's become very popular in the Western world. Let me ask you a question. Um, did you know that Buddhism was founded in India and it died out in India for over a thousand years? Why? Why did Buddhism disappear in India, the most tolerant religious area in the world? You can be Buddhist, you can be anything you want to be. It died out in India. Why? Ever, ever reflected on that? Well, I do a lot of studies in Buddhism. I teach on world religions. And uh, I bumped into a group uh, called the Pujgalavadins. Uh, now, don't worry about these being known today. This is a group that was declared heretical by the Buddhists and drummed out of Buddhism and eventually vanished. They were the last group of Buddhists in India. And then they vanished because they weren't really Buddhists. They were heretics. What was their heresy? Well, the problem with the Buddha was that his main idea was anatma, no self. You do not exist. God does not exist. The universe does not exist. All of this is total delusion, and the way of salvation is to get yourself to understand that you are not. Okay? That's Buddhism in a nutshell. Now, here's the problem. The Buddha accepted Hindu cosmology. Okay, karma and samsara. Okay, if you're not familiar with these two terms, we all have good karma, bad karma, right? Okay, so in Hinduism, the idea is if you do good deeds, you mechanistically, automatically get the results of that after you die and get reborn. And if you do bad karma, the opposite happens, okay? And that fuels the process of samsara, where you rotate around and around, and you get born and you die, and you get born and you die, and you get born and you die. And the Hindu philosophers destroyed Buddhism in India with a single question. If there's no self, what does karma attach to? How does karma get transferred from one life to the next if there's nothing for it to be attached to? Two. In other words, in a Hindu worldview, Buddhism just simply does not make sense. Another way, simpler ways of putting it is, if I do not ultimately exist, why do I have to strive to realize it? Yeah. Or, if the self is unreal, how can I use an unreal self to realize reality? <laughs> now, how do you learn these kinds of excellent transcendental signal questions. You have to know your people. You have to understand them deeply. My problem in witnessing to Buddhists was I did not understand Buddhism and their way of thinking well enough. And nowadays, when I meet a Buddhist, one of my questions is, why did Buddhism die out in India? 
and just let them meditate on that. Every other system has these kinds of problems because every other system is not based on love. And love is the nature of God. So let me conclude with this. If you're planning to reach out to your community and that's your, you want to kind of figure out by the end of this year, where do we want to focus? How do we want to do this? I'll have to say there are only two major things you're going to need to work on. Who are the people that I need to understand not just know, but understand, and how can I find the questions that will scratch them where they itch? Or maybe even, how do I figure out what their transcendental signal is and build on that? Friends, we have a calling to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus gives us the paradigm. He gives us the model. And if you have the chance to stay uh, later on today, we hope to kind of go a little bit more deeply into that aspect. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the fact that he loved people and he sought to meet them where they are and to understand them and to lead them with good questions to the place where they were open to consider the message that he had and the way of salvation that he created in his own body. God, there are so many lost people around us with so many different backgrounds. It's overwhelming. If I run into a Buddhist friend, if I run into a Muslim friend, if I run into an atheist, ah, what am I supposed to do? Well, Lord, you've called us to love and understand. Thank you that Jesus provides us the perfect example of that. Help us as we move forward in this coming year to learn how to know our people. And Lord, that's the key word. We don't want them to be other people. We want them to be our people. These are my friends. These are my people. I understand them. And I want to reach them with the good news of Jesus. And that may be a different group for every person in this congregation. But we all have people who can become our people. God, give us grace to reach out and to make a group of people that were before foreigners to us, make them our friends. Lord, we just commit that to you and we pray that the gospel message will go out as you open doors of ministry to each one of us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.